video stores I worked at also sold laser discs. They did not sell as well as the VHS tapes, but they were very popular amongst a small group of people. And those people, as you might guess, were very interesting to talk to. One of the highlights of working in a video store is the interaction with the customers. And if you were into films, it was a great way to pass the time while making money. People who collected laser discs were on a completely different level at the time. Mostly, what they taught me is that when people are into a niche, they tend to know a lot about that niche. What I learned very quickly is in their little niche, they were all very well educated. While a fan of movies would know when a film was gonna come out, maybe a big one, a person who collected laser discs would have memorized the entire release schedule for that year. What really took things up a notch was how into audio they were. Because at the time, Laserdisc was really the preferred format for audio files. Because not only did it have solid audio offerings, it also offered other audio formats that wasn't available on competing formats. Of course, they would come in and talk about director's cuts or how a movie that was not available in America was only available on an imported Laserdisc. But then they would sit down with you and talk about stereo sound or 5.1 sound. Things that nobody else was talking about. And things I had no concept of. And so they would educate me. They were a unique breed and it didn't surprise me that so many of them held on to the format for so long. It became a part of their identity. You see people consuming older content in different formats all the time nowadays. Record albums are surprisingly popular, and you're seeing people even distributing VHS and cassette tapes again. There was something futuristic and a bit magical about watching a movie on Laserdisc at the time. And you could see how it could turn people who were passionate about film, and particularly film sound, into diehard fans. So on today's show, I'm gonna to talk to you about the Laserdisc. We'll talk about the people who created it, We'll talk about the technology behind it, we'll compare it to other formats, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Laserdisc is a home video format and the first commercially available optical disc 
storage medium. They got their start in the very brilliant mind of David Paul Gregg. Gregg was born in 1923, passed away in 2001. He was an engineer and is credited as the inventor of the optical disc. He was inspired to create the first one in 1958 while working at the company Westrex, which was a part of Western Electric, and his patent for the video disc was filed in March of 1962. Greg would then move on to work at 3M and would be joined by two other engineers, Wayne Johnson and Dean DeMoss, and together they would file patents that covered a wide range of disc-related technology, including ways to duplicate discs, how to read them, how to use them for photographs, and how to reproduce television signals on those discs. When 3M decided that they were going to further the research outside of the company, Greg decided to leave and formed his own company, Gauss Electrophysics. Any company with the word electrophysics in it is pretty fun. Sounds like something out of a comic book. In 1968, the technology had matured and the patents were purchased by MCA, the Music Corporation of America. When these patents would land at MCA, they would start to figure out how are they going to commercialize these things. Reading an article about Greg, one thing I was struck with was how he tried to approach his development of the optical disc as a consumer. According to Greg, the optical disc had to be of extremely low cost, which implied the utmost simplicity, lowest material and processing costs, and user-friendliness. Another person who sometimes gets thrown into the mix when it comes to the invention of the laser disc is James T. Russell, who is an American inventor, a prolific inventor, who worked in the 60s on optical digital recording and playback. And while Greg certainly was the leader in the development of the optical disc, James T. Russell helped to popularize it by getting it into magazines and demonstrating the technology to a lot of other people and influencing them and their development in the future. So why was MCA, a movie company, interested in the patents of Gauss Electrophysics? Well, this was the 60s, and MCA had a large movie library, and they realized that in the future people were going to be watching movies in their home. Now, how were they going to get those things into their home was a big question mark. But they did see that the optical disc would be a good storage medium for the mass market. And simply that alone, the promise of what it could do, led to them purchasing Gauss Electrophysics. They quickly realized, though, that optical disc technology could be used outside of the home. For example, it could be used in education or in the commercial and industrial sectors. Because you could put high-quality information on it, companies like General Motors quickly adopted the technology to make interactive sales tools. In 1976, the VHS VCR was released, but it was still unclear who was going to rule the home video format. Two years later, on December 11, 1978, the first Laserdisc was made available in Atlanta, Georgia. They chose a very fun and very 70s name for this original Laserdisc format, MCA DiscoVision. The players that you got referred to the format itself as Video Long Play, or VLP. While MCA had brought the technology forward, it didn't take the world by storm. So they would sell a majority stake in the format to Pioneer Electronics in 1980. It was at Pioneer 
that they would change the name of the format to LaserVision and the brand name to LaserDisc. Philips would produce the players, and MCA would continue to produce the discs. While ultimately this partnership would go nowhere, at Philips, the players themselves would start to improve dramatically. And you would start to see the technology in day-to-day places. And to people at the time, this was amazing. You had video that could be very quickly called up, and that allowed for interactive exhibits at museums and in the commercial sphere. And in the commercial sphere allowed you to create kiosks where people could, with the push of a button, figure out what sort of things they would want in a car. Other companies started to look very closely at the optical format. Sony introduced a Laserdisc format in 1984 that could take any sort of digital data and marketed them as a data storage device with a 3.2 gigabyte storage capacity, which wasn't that far off from the DVD-ROM formats that would follow many years later. And in 1984, seemed like unlimited storage for most people. The first Laserdisc title that showed up in North America was Jaws, which was released on December 15th, 1978. If you have seen a CD or DVD, you kind of know what a Laserdisc looks like. Just picture one of them much larger, 12 inches in diameter. If you were to take a microscope and zoom in on them, you would see tiny bumps all across the surface of the disc, and you see space in between those bumps. Those are called pits and lands, and the pits are created through a high-powered laser and then read by a low-powered laser. And in a digital format, each is read as a 1 or a 0, and there are a lot of pits on a disc. A single laser disc can have 40 billion pits on one side. All of our modern reflective optical medium have these pits and lands, but laser discs are not a digital format. They don't read as ones and zeros, so you don't need to put them into a computer and translate what they mean, which is a very modern computing way to do everything. Everything is a one and zero. Those ones and zeros are put together, and they mean something. Laser discs are analog. The pits are created using frequency modulation of analog signals. In simplest terms, if you were to look up close at a CD-ROM or a DVD, it would look very organized. But if you look really closely at a laser disc, it looks kind of crazy. There were two ways of recording laser discs, CAV and CLV. CAV stands for constant angular velocity, whereas CLV stands for constant linear velocity. Now, that constant angular velocity or CAV discs, they rotate at exactly the same speed when you're playing them back, just constantly turning like a record. And every rotation would read one frame that would be shown on whatever screen you're showing it on. A CLV spun slower each time, and the disc was played from the inside edge to the outside edge. The benefit of that is that you could hold a lot more information on the CLV as opposed to the CAV. A CAV could hold 30 minutes of content per side, whereas the CLV could hold an hour. That didn't mean that the CLV was better. The CAV actually had a lot of advantages. It allowed for what was called trick play, allowing you to do things like freeze frame or play things in reverse, whereas a CLV disc required special hardware to do the same thing. 
which meant that it was more expensive and therefore only found on higher-end models. CAV did get used for some things, but CLV was by far the format that most titles were made available in. Eventually, everybody would adopt a new format called CAA. The CAA varied from CLV in that instead of slowing down gradually, it slowed down in controlled steps. One of the advantages of this format were that it greatly improved picture quality while being fully compatible with existing players. This format would expand greatly under the guidance of Pioneer. In 1985, the format CAA55 was introduced. With CAA55, they had to reduce the total playback per side of disc down to 55 minutes 5 seconds. Because of this, often the titles released on it had lower quality audio so that they could keep the film on one disc. By 1987, Pioneer released CAA60, which would allow a total of 60 minutes and 5 seconds per side. They would eventually release CAA65 and finally a CAA70 which would allow 70 minutes of playback per side, although there were no known uses of this format in a consumer market. Now, a lot of this formatting is important because one of the problems with laser discs is the capacity of the disc itself. If you could only have about an hour, you had to switch discs. And if it was a movie that was epic, say two to three hours, some movies are four hours, that means you're getting up multiple times to change the disc. If you've listened to a record versus a CD, then you know the difference between analog and digital format. Digital format can be read by a computer, and in theory there's no loss of any sound. Some of the more modern audio that we take for granted on our home televisions and even things that would come out on DVD and Blu-ray didn't exist until DVD and Blu-ray adopted them. And even with DVD, it took a long time. Things like Dolby Digital and DTS, which are very common, were originally only available on Laserdisc. One of the first home video releases of 6.1 channel Dolby surround sound was in 1999 for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which was released on Laserdisc in Japan. And the reason it was released on Laserdisc and why it was important to make these audio formats compatible with Laserdisc is because Laserdisc was filled with people who appreciated good audio. So they fueled demand for it. And they were all invested in this format already. So they would give them the format they want with the features they want, even though a new format, DVD, was on the horizon that can do the same or more, even more cheaply. Still, Laserdiscs and Laserdisc music would linger for a long time and has a market all its own. People who collect Laserdisc audio have existed for a very long time and are still out there today. What I think most people who got access to Laserdisc early were most impressed with were something that felt very science fiction-y about Laserdiscs at the time was that these things were read by a laser. And lasers have always had that appeal of feeling futuristic. I have a laser pointer on my desk, and I still look at it sometimes like it's a lightsaber or something out of Flash Gordon. As you might guess, the evolution of the laser and the laser technology used in Laserdisc players was gradual. The earliest Laserdisc players employed gas-helium-neon laser tubes, and they had a red-orange light from 1978 to 1984. 
all Laserdisc players would use the helium neon laser tube. In March of 84, Innovators Pioneer would introduce the first Laserdisc player with a solid state laser, the LD700. This was also the first Laserdisc player to load from the front and not the top, a format that would basically change all Laserdisc players in the future and inform a lot of CD and DVD players moving forward. And for the most part, from that point on, solid state lasers were used. Even though helium neon lasers had an advantage, they were a shorter wavelength laser, and they would create a much smaller spot on the disc in terms of reading. And that meant that they could better track on discs that might have manufacturing flaws in them. So when they introduced the solid state laser, they had to invent technology a tilt servo mechanism that would tilt the entire laser table to keep it parallel with the disc so that the laser beam, which was now much larger, was always perfectly circular and could read things without causing errors. From that point on, laser discs were prone to external vibrations. And so when you would bump into the table while a laser disc was playing or into the player, you'd get the skip. It also meant that the picture quality went down slightly, and people said that you could see the difference. You would see streaking in solid colors and other sort of artifacts. So it was a cheaper, easier to manufacture technology, which perhaps led to a worse experience for the consumer. Now, a lot of laser discs were one-sided. Eventually, there would be two-sided laser discs. Either way, you had to flip the disc over. Now those discs are actually made up of two single-sided discs glued together, and they would eventually create technology that would allow the laser to flip and read the other side. Pioneer would also make jukeboxes, mostly for industrial settings, that could hold up to 50 discs. Only one consumer player, the LDW1, was made. The W1 could hold two discs and could automatically change those discs, by rotating the entire mechanism. That meant the laser and the turntable could rotate. There was not a huge demand for these, but it's an interesting footnote in Laserdisc history. Now, I remember people who were into Laserdiscs coming into the video store where I worked at the time and being very excited that Laserdiscs were adding new features that would allow them to play things like CDs. And then later on, when DVDs started to get some buzz about them, people would try to convince me that I needed to buy the Laserdisc player with the DVD player because then you'd be hedging your bets on which technology was going to win in the end. The most common size of a Laserdisc was 30 centimeters or 11.8 inches, which was approximately the size of a vinyl record, an LP, which is 12 inches or 30.5 centimeters. They would create smaller 7.9 or 20 centimeter Laserdiscs. They were EP-sized discs that played only 20 minutes per side. They were much rarer than the full-size laser disc. Not really popular in North America. Sort of matched the vinyl single size that we would see in music and were primarily used for music video compilations. They were also commonly used in karaoke machines at the time. And there was even a smaller size, the 4.7 inch or 12 centimeter CD-sized single-style laser disc. These were referred to as CD video discs or video single discs, and they could carry up to five minutes of analog video content or 20 minutes of digital audio. CD video discs can only be played on laser discs, 
or things that are CDV compatible. They appear to be very popular in Japan and a few other countries, but never really caught on in the rest of the world. People are going to compare formats to one another, and there are a couple of formats that have existed at the same time as Laserdiscs. One of the ones that confuses people the most is the CED, or Capacitance Electronic Disc, which was a playback system developed by RCA. This is not an optical format at all, which makes it really fascinating. Instead, these things work like phonograph records, and you have a special needle and a high-density groove system similar to what you would get in an album. The CED would peak in the 70s, although it got its start in the 60s, but it was really killed off by the Laserdisc format, which was viewed as similar, but more futuristic. Still, CED still has its fans, who appreciate its picture quality and the collectability of the discs. Unfortunately, as a format, because there's physical touching of the disc and the player, a CED would degrade over time. So the work of collectors who actually want to watch these things is getting a lot more difficult. VHS was the bigger problem for Laserdisc, and we would see that Laserdisc had higher quality in both picture and audio, but what it came down to was price. That wasn't a problem at first. Creating these tapes took a long time, but as the technology got better, the creation became less time-intensive and a lot cheaper. To create a Laserdisc by the end of 1980 cost about $5 per two-sided disc, whereas to duplicate a videotape was significantly less than that. And as we got further towards the 90s, would come down to as little as a dollar to create a videotape. Now that was fine in Japan, where they actually subsidized the price of Laserdiscs to keep them in parity with tapes. But in the U.S., that was not the case. And consumers didn't really care that the format wasn't that great. They wanted something cheap. They also liked that you could record onto a VHS tape and record stuff off your own television set. Now, by the time DVD came along, Laserdisc was already on its way out. They didn't really have to compete with one another. But people did recall the Laserdisc when thinking about DVDs, and I think viewed them as both kind of futuristic or that DVD was the next iteration of Laserdisc. And while DVD had a lot of advantages and had made big technological leaps, one would not have existed without the other. One of the more novel uses at the time for Laserdiscs was in video games. Probably most famous would be Dragon's Lair. But the first arcade Laserdisc game was Sega's Astron Belt, which was a third-person space combat game that had live-action, full-motion video. It was developed in 82 and triggered Laserdisc fever in the video game industry. So why in the United States do we not know of this, even though it was a big hit in Japan? Its release in the United States was delayed because of software and hardware changes, and by that time, another game, Dragon's Lair, had been released. In Dragon's Lair, you had animated scenes that looked exactly like a high-end cartoon, and you used your joystick and button to basically make decisions. And this would cause the video to jump to the next scene, or a scene that was influenced by how you decided to move, or quickly move, your joystick and hit your button. I did a show just on Dragon's Lair. You should give it a listen. It was one of those games that cost 50 cents, 
and just wowed everyone. And it would lead to many other Laserdisc games from the time, although none of them are as well remembered as Dragon's Lair. If I were to break down why Laserdisc failed in America, it was price. The players were expensive, and the discs were expensive. And consumers in North America just weren't willing to spend the extra money, and they couldn't justify spending 33% more for a format that just didn't wow them. Home video itself was pretty amazing already, so to get that extra level, you had to be either very sensitive to picture quality or very sensitive to audio quality. Most people are not. It also probably didn't help that many people confused CED with Laserdisc and already had negative feelings about the CED. Eventually, it would find a place in nearly 1 million American homes by the end of 1990. But try going to a video store at the time, or even a place that sold VCRs and Laserdisc players, and see the selection. In our video store, we had shelves and shelves of VHS tapes, and we only had a rack of Laserdiscs that were maybe updated once a month, whereas we would get new VHS tapes once a week. The last title released in North America on Laserdisc was Paramount's Bringing Out the Dead, which was released on October 3rd, 2000. The official last title would be released in Japan on September 21st, 2001. Production of Laserdisc players would continue until January 14th, 2009, when Pioneer ceased production. Most physical formats are slowly dying, and yet many of them still find their fans. People will say that vinyl records have a warmer sound, but a lot of people will also talk about how certain things are only available in some of these older formats. You could go to a shop and find laser discs or records that are not available in any other format, and that will continue to make a lot of these formats compelling for collectors and just people who want an interesting experience. So next time you have the opportunity to watch a film on Laserdisc, or perhaps you're just interested in starting a fun collection, why not learn a little bit more about Laserdiscs? They're an interesting footnote in consumer electronic history, and while slightly outdated, still have a lot to offer to the consumer. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at Retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Twitter.com slash Retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. You can follow Peachy on Twitter at Twitter.com slash PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. Thanks to everyone who continues to support the show. The Retroist is on Patreon. There I'm posting audio extras, and we'll be posting bonus shows as well as updates to old shows. If you'd like to support the Retroist Patreon, you can drop by patreon.com retroist. Another way you could support the show is by giving it a positive review wherever you've listened to the show. That helps people find the show, and I would really appreciate it. We've added some new supporters, and I'd like to thank them. Thanks to Rick Boyer, Darren Simon, Brian Gibson, and Jose R. Quezada. Thanks to the new supporters and everyone who helps to continue to support the show. It's a lot of fun, and I hope we can keep doing this together for a long time. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Oh, and then... 
They commented, a CED player is not a Laserdisc player, you idiot. Gotta love the internet. That was tough to get through. This has been a Retro production. Goodbye.